I have to say that I think we are at the point where certain things don't really need to be studied a whole lot more. We already know that a plant-based diet causes a better weight, a healthier weight loss than other kinds of diets and better weight maintenance over time as opposed to yo-yo dieting with starvation diets or low-carb diets, all these kinds of things. We already know that a plant-based diet is ideal for diabetes. It's, we already know that. We already know it reverses heart disease. Um, it's maybe time to not question that anymore. That was Dr. Neil Barnard, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Hello, YT community. This is Jess, and I am your host. Welcome back to the show, or if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. The Yogi Triathlete Podcast is about bringing the stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose to you every week. And today, we, myself and co-host husband BJ, are beyond excited to bring to you a man who is raising the bar on living purpose. Dr. Barnard is by all means in alignment with his soul's journey, and this is evident not only through his enthusiasm about the subject matters of nutrition and raising the standards of research, but in the massive influence that he's having on the medical field through nutrition education of not only his patients, but his peers currently practicing medicine and the doctors of the future. Dr. Barnard is a clinical researcher, medical doctor, fellow of the American College of Cardiology, adjunct professor of medicine at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences, founding president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and New York Times best-selling author. He has authored more than 70 scientific publications and 18 books, including his latest, The Cheese Trap, How Breaking a Surprising Addiction Will Help You Lose Weight, Gain Energy, and Get Healthy, which will be available February 2017, and it's available now for pre-order on Amazon. Dr. Barnard is dedicated to the research and education of the effects of diet on chronic lifestyle diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. He has campaigned against live animal teaching labs in medical schools and promotes animal alternatives in medical research. He believes that doctors should be empathetic and resist practicing medicine that relies on compromises and accepts suffering. He has hosted PBS television programs on nutrition and is often called upon as the health expert by various news programs to discuss nutrition and research. Dr. Barnard is seen in many nutrition-focused documentaries such as Milk, Forks Over Knives, and Supersize Me. He can also be seen at length talking about nutrition and advocating a vegan diet in countless YouTube videos of his talks and interviews. He's been on The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Dr. Oz, CBS Morning Show, and CNN, just to name a few. He's been featured, referenced, and interviewed in USA Today, Washington Business Journal, Prevention Magazine, LA Times, and I could go on and on and on about how amazing this medical doctor is and the far-reaching effects that he is having in the field of medicine. He should be revered as an absolute gift to this world, and his knowledge, pursuit for medical excellence, and exemplary standards in research are literally changing the landscape of medicine every single day. And to think that we got to sit down with him at his office in Washington, D.C. just a few months ago still puts me into amazement. Not only because he graciously granted the interview almost immediately, but that he was as present and engaging as I have seen him in movies and television. 
To say that it was a delight to share the mic with Dr. Barnard is an understatement. His enthusiasm and lightheartedness is contagious. And I think you're going to feel that through this interview. He has a generous spirit and deep passion for not only spreading the good word of plant-based nutrition, but educating people, doctors, and creating materials for medical schools, not to mention giving voice to the animals. In this interview, we discuss the benefits of a plant-based diet on the health of the human race. He clears up any confusion about diabetes. He explains the problem with eggs and dairy. He breaks down the foundation of research and the effects of food on Alzheimer's disease. He discusses the positive side effects that people experience when switching to a plant-based diet and why yo-yo diets and diet fads like low-carb, high-protein, and the blood-type diet simply don't benefit our health. And of course, we chat a bit about mindfulness, and Dr. Barnard shares his unique perspective on the subject matter. Dr. Barnard was born into a family of cattle ranchers and doctors. He has driven cattle to slaughter. He grew up with the smells of animal flesh roasting in the oven, a home where spaghetti seemed exotic. In step with his MD lineage, Dr. Barnard received his medical degree from George Washington School of Medicine, and this is where his plant-based journey began. As I said before, I could go on and on about this man, but I'd rather just have you hear it for yourself. Please be sure to check out the show notes so you can simply get lost in all of his helpful videos, books, and plant-based knowledge. And also because we have amazing sponsors that are offering you guys sweet deals. And it just so happens there's some gift-giving holidays coming our way. So let's do this, you guys. Let's fill the stockings with health this year because really, who needs another pair of socks? Okay, you guys, that's it. Time to get on with the show. We hope you enjoy this hour of Plant Power with Dr. Neil Barnard. Anyway, is this my spot? That's, that's your, your spot. spot. Okay. Yes. And you know the drill. You've been on the mic okay. before. All right. So I, I'm sitting here and we're admiring the library. And what sticks out to me is the Atkins book, The Diabetes mm. Revolution. Yes. Maybe, maybe we should just dive right into that since that's such a... Um, so prevalent in our country and there's so many people that are suffering from diabetes and why would a diet like that which is so animal heavy be something that would be helping the revolution well uh, a low carbohydrate diet an atkins diet is obviously something that we would definitely not recommend in fact we'd recommend exactly the opposite but you can see why people would think it might be a good way to go because diabetes means you've got too much sugar in your blood and people know that sugar will come from carbohydrates. So if I'm eating potatoes or bread or rice, that will digest to release sugar in my blood. And so if I want to get my blood sugar down, I should avoid all those foods. That, at least that's what a lot of people imagine. However, um, the body runs on glucose. The body runs on sugar in the same way as a car runs on gasoline. You know, sugar is the fuel for the brain, the muscles, all of us. And the problem in diabetes isn't the fact that there's sugar getting into the blood. The problem is that it's building up in the blood instead of getting into the muscles where it can power them or, or into the other parts of the body. That's the problem. The, the sugar isn't getting where it belongs. Why is that? At Yale University, researchers brought in a number of people who had diabetes and put them in a scanning device called MR spectroscopy. And they showed that their muscle cells were filled with little fat droplets. 
And with the fat droplets inside the muscle cells, glucose couldn't get from the blood into the cells. Same thing with the liver. The fat was building up, and the, glu the glucose can't get out of the blood into the cells if it's all gummed up with fat. What's the answer? The answer isn't to avoid potatoes and rice and pasta. And if you think about it, people in rural Japan or rural China, where they've been thin and healthy for a really long time, um, they're eating rice all the time, huge amounts of carbohydrate. And in fact, when they started westernizing their diets and getting away from, from rice and getting into meat and cheese, that's when they started getting diabetes. So the, the answer to diabetes is not to avoid carbohydrates. The answer is to get the fat out of the cells. And to do that, uh, you want to avoid animal fat 100%. I'm talking about a, a vegan diet. Um, if you avoid the chicken fat on your plate, it's not going to get inside your cells. Um, and then we also keep oils low. If I have a person who's got diabetes, we'll keep the oils pretty low. And instead of taking that bottle of olive oil and going glug, 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 glug all over your pasta, we'll keep that modest. And when that happens, when, when you make those changes, what we believe is happening is that the fat droplets in the cells start to dissipate. And the sugar can now get into the cells, and the diabetes improves, the blood sugars come down. Sometimes the diabetes just goes away. So th that's the new approach. Yeah, so essentially the, the rise in, in blood sugar is the symptom of what's happening in the cells. So to treat the symptom of, you know, let's not put any more sugar in this body, it's not getting to the source of the problem, which is the fat in the cells. That's exactly it. Uh, people are, are treating this symptom, um, my blood sugar is high, rather than recognizing the cause, which is my cells are insulin resistant. And that's, that comes from the buildup of fat. And I just have to say that my mother, who is, um, I won't release her age because she'll listen to this and she'll murder me. She is over 60, let's put it that way. And Happens she, to the best of us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's aging so gracefully, I'll tell you what. And she was diagnosed with diabetes and her doctor said, okay, that's it. Like, it's, it's time. You're going on insulin. And she said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And she said, well, I'm going to talk to my daughter. And he said, well, is your daughter a doctor? You know, it's kind of a funny situation. Hopefully your daughter's not a doctor. Yeah, because, yeah. Because doctors get, forgive me for interrupting, <laughs> doctors get so little nutrition training, it's really yeah. terrible. Anyway. And so she said to him, well, my daughter's, my daughter's an Ironman and she's a vegan. And he said, well, good, you know, good luck. And because the advice that she was getting was stop the sugar, stop the ice cream, stop the wine. And it wasn't high, like the blood sugar was still going higher and higher and higher. So I had a conversation with her and I was trying to explain to her this very thing that it's not necessarily about the sugar, that it's about the animal products in her diet. And I shared an article that you wrote with her and that changed her life hmm. because within months she reversed the diabetes and her doctor couldn't figure out how she did it. But the way that you articulated it in such simple terms, because really it is simple terms, it's like putting a, you've equated it to like putting chewing gum in a lock. Like you can't get your key in the lock. The sugar can't get into the cells. And that really changed her life because she understood it and she put it into action. And like I said, within months, her blood sugar was lower than mine. <laughs> wow. I don't suppose she's running to, uh, Iron Man's now. No. <laughs> yeah. that'll, Not come, yet. that'll come next. That'll come yes, next. believe me, well, she's you, eyeing it. You know, you've really put your finger on such an important thing because doctors have had this information available to them. The research that I described was done 
at Yale University and other, other, many other universities have done the same kind of research. They've confirmed this. It's been published in the top journals, but somehow it's not getting through to a lot of the rank-and-file doctors. They're still very quick with their prescription pad, and they're frankly completely ill-founded nutrition advice. They'll say things like, don't eat anything white. You know, okay, I mean, what they mean is don't eat white rice, eat brown rice or something like that, but they end up sort of condemning everything and, and missing the real point. We're out to change that, and hopefully we will. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, they don't, they're not getting a lot of nutrition training in, in school. And I recall an interview that I heard with Dr. Michelle McMacken. Are you familiar with her? Sure. And she says the first day that she walked into her office saying like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to them. I'm going to talk to this, this patient about diet. And before she was so unempowered to do that, but she had gone to a convention um, and, uh, and really got that empowerment. And the, the light switch went on like, oh my gosh, this really is the answer to it all, is nutrition. And another side story, we have a, a friend of ours that I know through yoga, and he's 24, he's vegan, he's an athlete, he's a yogi, and he just started medical school. And he really wants to be a game changer, which I believe he will be. Within the first week of him being in school, I received an email from him about the resistance that he predicted he would encounter. And I know that there, I've heard that there are some changes going on in, in medical schools, but that he was in a lecture where nutrition was just completely disregarded as the foundation of, you know, what healthy living really means. And so I told him, I said, you just stick with it because you're going to be one of those doctors that changes the game in the future. Well, you know, it's not as if we don't have a very good research foundation for the power of of nutrition. And you can think of, of a research foundation as being in different layers. The first layer is observational studies. Vegetarians tend to be healthier than other people. They're thinner, they live longer, they've got lower cancer rates, and so forth. So those are observational studies. And that's just the beginning. People will rightly say, well, vegetarians are probably also more physically active. They're better educated. They might be more affluent. And, and that all can be true. And so you say, well, is it really the diet? So then you do a randomized trial where you bring in people. They, let's say they have diabetes or extra weight or whatever the condition is, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. And you put half them on the diet and half them on either some other diet or, or nothing, well, whatever the comparison is. And then you show that the diet really does have the effect that you thought it did. And when you do two or three or four of these studies, it, it becomes quite compelling. But we're way beyond that point now. There have been many, many, many studies looking at plant-based diets. And then they go to the third level, which is um, systematic review, where you're not just taking the observational studies and the individual randomized trials. You're now looking at every single study ever published on an area, and you're crunching all the numbers together. And it is now beyond question that a plant-based diet does lower cholesterol, does improve body weight, it does improve your blood pressure, it does help people with diabetes to improve their blood sugar control significantly, and it's just beyond question now. And in fact, so much so that when the Dietary Guidelines for Americans came out this past January, 
they, they mentioned that there are healthy dietary patterns, one of which is a vegetarian dietary pattern. And they cited some of the research that, that we had done, um, which I, I was glad about, but um, it's really long past time for recognizing that uh, a vegetarian and ideally vegan dietary pattern is the healthiest. And the closer people get to that, the better off they're gonna be. So with all these studies coming out, they're on top of studies that have been done in the past for years and years. And so what we come across with the people that we work with is just so much confusion. So there's this report saying this and, and these, um, these analysis of, of smaller tests that prove something, they just don't get the exposure out there that maybe other tests do. So how can we decipher the right path or, or what to direct people to? You're talking about the confusion in the world of research. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. I feel I feel your pain. I got to tell you, um, and it's it, it's it's becoming a tremendous issue because the food industry knows that it needs research. The egg industry is a case in point. Mm-hmm. Eggs have more cholesterol than any other food, and so doctors were obviously saying you should be be careful about eggs because they have they, it, it, a single egg has more cholesterol than an eight ounce steak. So the egg industry thought, well, this is like limiting our sales, you know. So they set off to do research studies trying to show that cholesterol doesn't matter or that cholesterol in eggs doesn't matter or you can have an egg here or there and it won't affect you very much. And the fact is there are certain ways that you can do research that would lead to that conclusion. For example, let's say I take you. You're not eating any eggs. And so I start giving you a couple eggs every day. Your cholesterol is going to go right up. And if I publish that finding, that's not helping the egg industry. But what if I bring in instead of, of, of you, I bring in some people who are eating as already a couple eggs a day, a lot of bacon, a lot of sausage. They've got a very high fat, high cholesterol diet. And I add one egg a day to their diet. I can show that the effect is really pretty minimal. And I publish that finding, and I send it around to every food writer in the world, and I say, see, eggs aren't really a problem. It's the equivalent of taking a group of pack-a-day smokers and asking them to smoke two extra cigarettes a day. You don't really see much difference. But on the other hand, if you're a non-smoker and you're adding a couple cigarettes every single day, will you just have a cough that you wouldn't otherwise? <laughs> sure, you're going to have all kinds of problems. So industry has gotten very clever, and they are starting to use research, and they're starting to promote it like crazy. And it has become totally confusing for the press. Um, and they will also use the technique of meta-analysis, which, which we use, everybody you know, who's good at this, uses meta-analysis to crunch your numbers in a good way. But if you engineer your study in a certain way, you can make real effects disappear. And we are now entering a phase where there is, I think, I think the confusion is only going to get worse because there is so much money in junk food. By junk food, I'm talking about not just candy. I'm talking about meat, dairy, eggs, you know, all the stuff that's making us unhealthy. And man, are they pushing their agenda in a, in a really bad way. So, so the point here with that is if people see these studies and they see the headlines, they should read the article. They should read the details and see who's funding it, who, like what's behind it, what are the actual resources. Or maybe some of them don't say that, right? Or so do they not say that these people were already consuming a high fat diet or they're not obligated to release that they will often they they will re- reveal funding sources um and i have to say that has been a shocking thing in there was recently um 
a, a review of cholesterol and diet. 11 of the 12 studies that were included in this review were industry funded. 10 of them, 10 of them were the egg industry and the, the 11th was, I forget, poultry or something like that. So yeah, they will, they will reveal that, but you, know, you, you can't say that every single person who's trying to make a decision about what they have for breakfast has to suddenly have a PhD in nutrition. I don't really know what the answer is, and I have to say that I think we are at the point where certain things don't really need to be studied a whole lot more. We already know that a plant-based diet causes a better weight, a healthier weight loss than other kinds of diets and better weight maintenance over time as opposed to yo-yo dieting with starvation diets or low-carb diets, all these kinds of things. We already know that a plant-based diet is ideal for diabetes. It's, we already know that. We already know it reverses heart disease. Um, it's maybe time to not question that anymore. We really need to remedy the situation with doctors and here at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine we've been developing materials that can be used in medical school lectures and in, including interactive modules so that the student can go online and how do, you, how, do, how do you not just know what's important to say but how do you actually talk to the patient about concerns they have. Okay I'd love to go vegetarian but where do I get my protein? That's a question that people ask. It's a really easy one to answer but you know, it's, it's good for doctors to know the answers to those questions. Yeah, absolutely, and especially in this protein-obsessed um, right. environment. <laughs> yeah, people don't know what protein is. They just know, uh, where do I get it? And know, I need it, and I need a lot of it. <laughs> Another thing that we come up, you know, against or, or we, yeah, we come up against a lot is the blood type diet. So we hear a lot of people in conversation that we have with people like, oh, I used to be vegan, but, you know, my blood type requires me to eat turkey or my blood type requires me to eat red meat. And what, can you speak to that a little bit so people can understand maybe? Yeah. This is a, a book, um, Eat Right for Your Type, written by Diadamo, who's a, a sincere person. Um, however, uh, the, the idea was that if you're a type, blood type A, that you should do well as a vegetarian. But if you're type O, you need meat and you're not going to do so well as a vegetarian. Well, Type O is the biggest type. Most people, it's, it's by far the most common. Um, I'm type O. Um, and in our research studies, when we bring people in, the type O's are put on a vegan diet, just like the type A's. And they benefit from it, just like the type A's. And they don't benefit from having meat in their diet. So in other words, it was a cute idea that your blood type determines what you eat, but when you actually put it to the test, it doesn't work. So I'm actually writing a book now called eat right for your shoe size. And if you're nine and a half, a vegan diet would probably be best for you. If you're 10, <laughs> oh, let's do vegan again. So. Yeah, and my response is usually, or the inquiry that I have in my mind when I hear that is, oh, I really want to look at what you were eating as a vegan. Because you can eat a lot of vegan junk food. So we tend to use the phrase whole food plant-based diet because that's going to cover you. That's going to give you the healthiest diet. That's going to give you all your protein, all your iron, all your calcium. It's going to give you everything you need to get. You know, you could eat chips and salsa all day long and be very deficient in a lot of things. So I think looking at the diet, if you are vegan and you're not thriving, well, then there's something to look at there. Start with what you're already doing. Start and look at that. Sure. But, you know, vegan is a good thing. And... Um, you're certainly right that, that the companies have stepped up so that you can now have not just a vegan meat substitute, but they've got vegan 
ice cream, vegan yeah. cheese. I just all, ran into some vegan donuts in Ithaca. Uh, yeah, all this stuff you don't, <laughs> stuff you don't really need. However, um, you know, here's what's happening. A person who's a junk food eating meat eater and they go vegan, they might be a junk food eating vegan. And so getting, getting the animal products off their plate is a good idea. And it really is. So, so a vegan diet is a great thing. But I don't see it as the extreme end of a diet exploration. I see it as the beginning. So, all right, I'm going to get serious. I'm, I'm getting the animal products off my plate. Frankly, the animals are glad for that, too. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so is the earth. You know, I mean, yeah. your envi environmentalist friends that we stopped arguing with a few years ago because climate change, let's face it, is real. You know, um, that argument was won. It, it, it's obviously here. Now it's and, where is it coming from? Well, we, it's coming it, from the plate. It, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, go, going to a, a vegan diet is a good idea. But let's go further. What are the healthiest foods that I can be eating? And, and it often means sort of simple things, beans and grains and vegetables and fruits. And uh, some people would have more raw food, some people less, some people might go macrobiotic. You know, you can do all those explorations and that can be fun. And you can look at different cuisines. Am I more a Mediterranean kind of person? So am I chickpeas and hummus and pasta? Or am I more an Asian type or African type foods or Ethiopian or, or maybe Indian food? Fine, you know, explore the world of plant-based eating. Um, but again, I don't see it as an extreme end. I see it as the beginning. When I was a kid growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, I don't know if you've ever, ever been there, seen the movie or whatever. Anyway, that's, that's, yeah, it, that, that's where I'm from. It's not on our place of places to live. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, you should, you should really, really head to Fargo. Like hey, fe February? Should we go in February? Uh, <laughs> do, do not go anywhere between October and like the end of April. Anyway, um, when, I, when I was growing up, it was roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn like every, every day, except for special occasions when it was roast beef, baked potatoes, and peas. And anyway, um, it was a quite restricted diet. And... To even have something like spaghetti was kind of exotic, you know. And needless to say, I never had hummus or curry or any of the or veggie sushi. Never, never heard of such a thing. Um, now, living here in Washington, D.C., there's every kind of cuisine and every kind of vegan cuisine. So it can be Chinese, Hunan, Sichuan, Japanese, the, the vegetarian sushi um, or vegetarian miso soup or, or whatever it might be. We have... 25 Ethiopian restaurants or more, all of which have a huge vegan, vegan menu. There's Thai food, there's Korean food, there's you know, all kinds of things. If you said, no, 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 you can't have any of that anymore. Go back and have roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn, because that's where you grew up. I think, wait a minute. To me, that's a diet of deprivation. On a completely plant-based diet, I feel like my diet is so varied and rich and delightful. It's so it's endless. Yeah, it's it's completely endless. It now, really now is. Now, it's when people are first new to it, they think, "What am I going to eat?" Because they can't mm -hmm. quite envision it. It's like plunking into a new country. You know, I, I'm not too sure how to negotiate, but eventually you figure it out, and then you, it's like becoming a non-smoker. You, you eventually don't want to go back to where you were. And the great thing is, is that your body helps you along with that. You feel better. The microbiology of your gut changes. You start craving healthier things. You start craving the plants that you're eating. It is possible because physiologically, it's happening in your body. Oh, my God. You should see things. When we do studies, we just did a study for diabetic neuropathy. And neuropathy is where the nerves are being attacked by the disease. You know, a person's had diabetes for 10 years, 15 years. And it's not just blood sugar elevations they've got. They've got symptoms. Uh, their feet are getting numb or they're getting these stabbing pains. In the course of this study, there was a, a jazz player we had, uh, who, bass player. 
and he couldn't get through two or three songs without his fingers just hurting so much from the neuropathy. So he goes on the vegan diet. After a couple months, he says, I can play again. I'm feeling good. Um, you know, yeah, his numbers are better, but his life is better. A couple months after that, he comes in and says, and my erectile dysfunction is gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's true. You feel better. You know, you, and sometimes in ways you don't expect. Or, you know, a person might go vegan because they heard dairy products can trigger migraine, for example, or rheumatoid arthritis. Which, you know, that's not the only cause. But, but for a lot of people, those conditions are, tri are triggered by dairy. So they go on a plant-based diet. And they discover their skin clears up. Wow, well, I wasn't looking for that. But it happens. Or, you know, they just feel more energy or they sleep more soundly. All these things happen. You know, don't get me wrong. There's still issues. And, and, and you can still get sick, you know. Mm -hmm. But you have taken away the big issue which is unhealthy food getting in your body and, and doing the mischief that unhealthy food can do. Yeah, I think that's what we've, we've, we've come to realize even recently is that just because you're vegan doesn't mean everything that you do is going to protect you from everything. You know, I just recently um, was supposed to race um, an Ironman in, in Lake Placid, but I got a stomach virus. They still don't know what it is, but I've been plant-based for four, four years now, and it just took me out. So... And they never had a reason why that happened. But for the people that switch to a vegan plant-based diet, you're, you're still going to come up against things. But it does reduce your inability to re maybe recover quicker. Um, you know, I've been able to recover and now I'm, you know, training for my next race. But what, what can people, so we're talking about studies here and, and getting into um, plant-based nutrition. What's an easy way in? I, I know you guys have the 21-day vegan challenge. Um, is there another, is there one study that you recommend people sort of easing their way into this if they're plant curious? Ah, what a great question. Um, you know, everybody kind of goes in their own door. Um, yeah, the 21 day program we have, it's, it's called the 21 day vegan kickstart. And we did it because we found that there's something sort of magical about just this three week period of time. It's, it's really short, but it's sort of your vegan adventure. So yeah, it's at pcrm.org at our website. And every day you get an email. It's got menus and recipes and cooking videos, and it's in English and Spanish and Mandarin, Japanese, um, one for people from India as well. Um, so that's one way. Um, we also have classes that we call Food for Life classes in, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred cities across the U.S. and in, in other countries. And that's a way in for some people. I write a lot of books because people are looking for an answer to diabetes or to weight or I wrote a book called Power Foods for the Brain because I was blown away that foods could affect the risk of Alzheimer's disease, which six or eight years ago I never would have even believed. But the data have come in from some really good research studies, and I thought people should know that. So different people have different ways in. And, um, and, and by the way, there are also a tremendous number of other terrific um, authors, people like Dean Ornish or Colin Campbell or... Um, Caldwell Esselstyn and John McDougall. There's lots, lots of people who are writing really uh, good books, and I encourage people to to uh, jump into them and see what they can learn. 
Yeah, I mean, especially now with audiobooks, you just download them, you can listen to them, like people who learn better that way, and then you listen to them over and over again. It's a great option for people. Absolutely. Yeah, Rich Roll was here. I don't know if you, you must know Rich. Oh, yeah. um, yes, well, energetically and social media-wise, <laughs> we're coming for you, Rich. Uh, I think he yeah, feels oh, it. Rich is, Rich is a, he's one of my favorite people on the planet, and what a, an amazing story he has had. But... Um, you know, he will reach people in his own way and through, kind of like you guys, you know, with, with podcasts and things like that. So everyone has, has their own way in, into this way of, of, uh, of going into it. And sometimes people might stumble around a little bit of it. They'll um, hear an interview saying that this would be a good thing to do, and then they might forget. And a month or two later, they'll hear somebody else with a message, and sooner or later, they're going to give it a try. And I think of it as being like the edge of a swimming pool. Sooner or later, you're going to jump in and see how the water feels. And when you do, you can think, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Yeah, and it's not about looking back. It's just looking forward. What can I do now? And the, right. body, is, the body is so amazing at its ability to repair itself. And, you know, you had mentioned um, the Indian population, you know, Ayurvedic, the Ayurvedic diet. And I know they have ghee and some things like that in there. But that whole medicine is about when the body is in balance, it can heal itself. And this is what we're seeing through a plant-based diet as well. Yes. Um, to my Indian friends, I do encourage them to not be handcuffed by tradition because we have learned some things about, say, dairy products that we didn't know before. And so I have many Indian friends, and when I am in India and I speak to audiences, by the way, they never say, where do you get your protein? Which in America, you know, that's what they say in New Jersey. But, 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 but what they will say in Delhi or Mumbai is, don't we need milk? Um, and I say, well, a calf needs milk from his mom or her mom. And human babies need milk from their mom. But after the age of weaning, you don't need any milk at all, and you definitely do not need the milk of a cow. That's a struggle for people for whom culturally it's been such a big deal to include cow's milk in their, in their diet. But I am convinced that the wonderful, beautiful Indian, Indian traditions of using simple foods like lentils and spinach and other many other simple plant foods and turning them into absolute wonderful creations that it would be even better if they could break their love affair with dairy and the overuse of oil um, which we see in a lot of restaurants some some get into it some don't but those would be two good steps yeah and i think you know I don't know if I'm speak, speaking correctly, but I would think that the, the dairy and kind of the traditional dairy and the diet comes from um, the view that the cow is sacred, right? Like the, the cow is very sacred in India. When I went to visit there, if there's a cow on the road, you're going to stop the car and wait right. for as long as that it's going to take for that cow to move. But I'm so glad you said the D word. What is going on with the USDA bailing out the dairy industry? You have a great solution. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, is, this has been going on for a long time. Um, when, you know, when, when automobile prices fall, the government doesn't say, hey, let's buy up a whole bunch of cars. You know, the government lets that industry sort it out. When computer prices fall, the government doesn't jump in and start buying computers to help the industry. But when cheese prices fall, and, and they fall because there's been a huge overproduction of it, uh, when cheese prices fall, the government buys up cheese. You think, what? wait a minute, in, in Washington, D.C., they're buying cheese? The answer is, yeah. Um, the, the USDA recently announced it was going to buy $20 million worth of cheese. And that's 11 million pounds. 
and they're going to stick it in food assistance programs in schools. Now, economically disadvantaged people already have more obesity and more diabetes compared to other people. The last thing they need is another hunk of Velveeta. Um, this is not what they should be doing. And same thing with schools. Kids in schools are eating massive amounts of this stuff already. They don't need more of it. And it's not done for health reasons. It's done purely because of lobbying from the dairy industry that has, that has caused this weird system to, to be set up. So our solution was that we should take that extra cheese and use it to fill potholes. Now, does that sound strange? Actually, cheese is an excellent binder. Mix it with some gravel, and you can fill in potholes like crazy. Um, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but we, we actually did do a video of this. We put, we put it online just to... to uh, make a little bit of fun of it. And I mean, you can imagine all kinds of uses. The, the government has a billion, B, billion with a B, a billion pounds of cheese stored up because the dairy farmers just are making more of it than anybody wants. Um, so what can you use it for? You can fill in potholes. You could, uh, you know, you could fill dumb, dumb bullets with it and send it up to our military because if the lead doesn't kill you, the cholesterol probably will. You could you could you could send it to Guantanamo Bay. You could have instead of waterboarding, we could have cheese boarding. I mean, people would probably confess in a minute if they had to eat more Limburger. Um, <laughs> anyway, we we can make fun of them, but but it's a it's a real problem because kids kids are heavy, and they childhood obesity is not from in physical inactivity. Physical activity is good, and inactivity not good. But that's not the issue. The issue is kids are eating in a way they never ate before. And sugar is a little bit of the issue, but sugar consumption has been declining since about 1999. Uh, it's true, bottled water has replaced soda to a, a very substantial degree. But cheese is going up, 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 up. It's all over everything. Uh, it's all over pizzas and, you know. You know yeah, it's, and it's the milk consumption is going down, but cheese is going up. And exactly right. Like you said, I mean, the last people who need it, the government is now going to give it to them. And we recently did an interview with Amy Hamlin from the Coalition of Healthy School Foods, and we were talking about um, the vegetarian food plan at PS244 in Queens. And, you know, we were saying, well, why couldn't it be plant-based? And it's, the, the, it's by law re required that there's cow's milk in schools. I mean, the dairy industry is really powerful. Would you say it's more powerful than the, like the meat industry, the chicken industry, the egg industry? They have certainly been very well organized. And now, because they're integrated with the federal government, um, these are now government-mandated programs. Um, and it, it is quite troubling. And some people have, I think, taken an interesting view. A number of African-American health advocates have said, Wait a minute. Lactose intolerance, meaning the inability to digest milk sugar, is present in about 70% of African Americans. And it can start when you're 6, 8, 10 years old. By the time you're 12, 14, 16, you're seeing a lot of it. And yet the government says, wait a minute. I don't care who you are. You will take that glass of milk and you will put it on your tray. Wait a minute. First of all, you can't show there's any benefit to that. Because st studies at Penn State University looked at risk of stress fractures in kids who drink milk and those who don't. You can't show any benefit of the cow's milk at all for bone integrity. Same thing with, with older people. Studies at Harvard show it, it, milk does not stop fractures. But apart from the fact that there's no benefit from it, you're telling people they have to drink something that's going to make them sick, that's going to make them unable to participate, 
that in, in a number of studies has been shown to be linked to prostate cancer, which hits its highest incidence in African-American men. We obviously have to change these, these programs. It is time for this to end. And we have been here before. We were there with tobacco. Everybody knew you don't need tobacco, but it's part of life and no, 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 the tobacco industry is so strong. Sooner or later, the health, ad health advocates just said, enough. And there is not a person on the planet who doesn't know that tobacco is linked to lung cancer. And the smoking rates have dropped dramatically. That's where we are now with food. We know you don't need cheese. You don't need that greasy stuff on anything you're eating. And people now know that if you're not eating meat, you're healthier than the person who is. But we're still pussyfooting around with whether we're actually going to do anything about it. And it's, it's really time for health advocates to speak up and say, a plant-based dietary pattern is the healthiest. Let's go there. And didn't, um, we were with uh, Dr. Greger, I think, uh, listening to him talk, and he, he mentioned th that smoking reports came out 50 years before smoking was actually... There was a, what, 6,000 reports, I can't remember the exact number, that came out before anyone actually did anything. So you talk about the, the plant-based movement and, and removing the, the meat and the dairy, like, when can we expect, or when, I know it's a, a challenging question, but w shouldn't we know better now that we need to progress this thing faster? Like, the smoking thing was such a huge, huge part of, of growing. I think doctors were smoking, and, and it was okay. But I feel like we need to progress this thing faster. We do. We do. And I think what's happening is things are going in two different directions. To tell you the truth, the population overall is not getting healthier. If anything, they're worse. There was a report out in uh, from the American Diabetes Association two days ago that diabetes has increased about 40%. In, yeah, here in the United States. I think it was between, if I'm remembering correctly, it was between 1999 and 2012. So we, things are, are, for the overall population, are getting worse, particularly in certain subpopulations. However, within that, there, the number of people who are becoming health conscious is growing very rapidly. And you can see it. Um, it's been six or eight years since I heard a person mispronounce vegan. You know, it used to be people would come in here like, what's a vegan diet? You know, you don't hear that anymore. <laughs> the vegan, and, vegan yeah, diet. You, you know, or you go into a health food store. 20 years ago, there were little dusty places, you know, uh, playing folk music, and the cashier was named Sunshine, and they had sort of a few dusty prod <laughs> products. Today, health food stores are big, and people are buying things. And they may, they may or may not be full-time following a plant-based diet, but at, at least some of the time. They want the, the veggie pizza or the, you know, whatever it is. And people are buying those foods. And I was back in Fargo not so long ago, and I was in the regular grocery store. They had soy milk, rice milk, hemp milk, oat milk, veggie uh, burgers, veggie dogs, all this stuff. So it's, it's absolutely everywhere. So to, to answer your question, mm -hmm. I think people cannot wait for, the, for everybody else to okay. sort it out. And the government, I think, is going to be the last to change. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, when we look at this bailout and we looked at we look at the automobile bailout, you know, what was that, 2009? Like they said, okay, we'll bail you out, but we want these cars to be more efficient. You know, but, and they had these requirements of how they had to step up their act. So with the dairy, it's, I think what we can do is make a decision every time we go to the store, every time we load up our plate, and I mean the supply and the demand it has to. I mean, I, I agree. I believe the government's going to be the last, but at some point they're going to have to wave that white flag, 
and start to to treat it like a normal business with supply and demand. And because we're going to run out, I mean, we have trillions of dollars of debt and we're buying all this cheese. And it's going to cause more costs down the road. Um, healthcare costs. Healthcare costs. Oh. A, an overweight kid, a kid who's just five or 10 pounds overweight, is going to become a seriously overweight adult. And the risk of developing diabetes is high. And you don't have to turn on the TV at night for more than 15 minutes. You're going to see three ads for diabetes medications because everyone wants to sell them stuff. So Medicare costs, health insurance costs are all going up. We can turn that around, but we'll never turn it around unless we focus on food. Yeah, and we all have a responsibility in, in this turnaround. I mean, we can't, we can't say that we don't, what we do doesn't matter. It does matter. And through podcasts like this, through Rituals podcasts, people are being educated. I mean, we've seen it with our audience. People are turning their diets around. We don't even, it's not like they reach out to us and say, oh, can you help me with this? Like all of a sudden we see them on Facebook and they've got this amazing plant-based meal that they're serving their families. Like it's happening. And so we have to continue to keep that energy moving forward and keep the momentum up and not lose sight of the hope that this can happen and oh, will happen. Absolutely. In fact, I have to say, sometimes there are people who become sort of passive vegans in a, in a, in a, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, we'll do a research study here and he might have diabetes and he comes in, but his wife, who just sat in on one of the classes and is going to kind of humor him and, and she doesn't want to make two meals, so she'll go vegan with him. She ends up losing 15 pounds mm -hmm. and her cholesterol falls yep. and she's feeling better. And the kids kind of reluctantly go along mm -hmm. with it. And then they suddenly discover that their times on the track team are a little bit better, you know, or, or their skin clears up or whatever, whatever the case may be. And so, uh, yeah, you, people can have this um, sometimes unintended effect on all the people around them. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's beautiful, the trickle effect that it has. Yep. And so I want to dive into your story. How did you get to be plant-based? The year before I went to medical school, I had a job helping out at autopsies in, uh, in a hospital in Minneapolis. And I was the autopsy assistant or morgue attendant, depending on how you wanted to put it. Somebody would die in the hospital and I would have to take the body out of the cooler and the pathologist would come in and do the autopsy and I would assist. And one day we had a guy who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack, probably from eating hospital food, but you know, that's <laughs> another story. So anyhow, um, the pathologist uh, took a big chunk of ribs off the chest. You, just, you don't do this with great delicacy. You just cut through the ribs and put them on the table. And, and that exposed the heart. And he showed me that the coronary arteries, which are on the surface of the heart, he sliced them open and he showed me that they were filled with plaque, which is this hard, concrete-like stuff in the arteries. Something that could fill potholes. <laughs> yeah, really. Possibly. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, once we use up the cheese, we can go with this. Um, <laughs> And so he was, would tell me, you know, this is your bacon and eggs that causes this condition. And, and it wasn't just in the arteries to the heart. It was in the carotid arteries going to the brain, the arteries to the legs, the arteries to the kidneys. And this made quite an impression on me. So at the end of this particular exam, he left the room and I had to clean up. So I put the ribs back in the chest and I sewed up the skin and washed everything up. And, and then I went up to the cafeteria. And they were serving ribs for lunch. Of course they were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did not become a vegetarian on the spot, but the look of it and the smell of it, I thought this is, it's like a body. Yeah. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's not like a body. It is a body. This is, you know, and, and I, I, could, I just couldn't eat it. I couldn't put it in my mouth. 
And so after that, I would look at chicken and it's a leg and whatever. So I don't know if you call this ethical or health or anything. It's just sort of this gut feeling there's something about this. And then also along the way, I participated in some animal experiments, um, which at first did not trouble me at all. But as time went on, I started to think, there's something really not quite right with this picture. And when I was in medical school, uh, one day the instructor said, next week is dog lab and you know, form your groups. And, and we all knew exactly what this meant. It was almost, almost like hazing. You would take a live, healthy dog, pet him and put him on the table and tape him down and give him a bunch of drugs and write down what the you know, epinephrine makes the heart go faster and propranol makes it go slower. Then you kill him. You put him in a trash bag and uh, pass the course. And I said, I, I, I don't think I'm going to do that. In fact, I know I'm not going to do that. And this was supposedly a required class. But um, I didn't do it. And um, what I'm coming at is somehow this confluence of this gut feeling that there's something <laughs> about eating animals, um, this concern about the welfare of animals, which was not where I was coming from as a kid. I, growing up in Fargo, we ate meat all the time. My extended family was all in the cattle business. Um, I drove cattle to slaughter myself. I killed animals. I, we hunted. Um, this was the way we grew up. And not just me. I mean, that's kind of most of America, really. But that, along with what we started to learn about health, made me realize you just cannot, you, you can't avoid taking action. And at some point, I just had a little talk with myself, and I thought, I think I'm going to stop eating meat first. And, you know, I had a moment of doubt for about three days. And then pretty soon, bingo, it made perfect sense. And then I realized dairy products and eggs had big issues, too. Got away from them. And, and then after that, I started exploring all kinds of other things, like we were talking about earlier, raw food, macrobiotic food, all this stuff, which is really, really, really cool. And then you don't look back. And, and to me, the idea of eating meat or dairy products, it's, it's just not something I would even consider. What I see from your story is really how the universe works. So I'm always kind of taking things from a yogi perspective. That you get these signs and you have these moments, like these potent moments or aha moments, whatever you want to call them. And then you get another one and you get another one. And it's it's are we awake enough to, to, to see them and to feel them? They will get louder. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take for us to, to really let it all sink in. And everybody's on their own journey. But I think that's exactly what happened to you. And then you got to that point where you had to, you know, you were in the class and it was mandatory to do this. And you said, no, I can't do it. And Well, I, by the way, it wasn't that I couldn't do it. I or just, you I, wouldn't. I just said, I felt this was an unethical yeah. thing. I, you know, I, I did not come to medical school to kill my first patient, basically, was my, my attitude. Yeah, and it, that doesn't make any sense. It, it, it didn't occur to me that they would throw me out or penalize me. I just thought, I, I, was, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I was exactly a cocky medical student, but I knew exactly what I was going to do, which was I was going to stand up and, and say no. And luckily, <laughs> it worked out. And By the way, I don't know if you know this, we ended up stopping the use of animals at all medical schools um, in the United States and Canada. Beautiful. Um, and, and I don't mean they're not, they're still using them in mm -hmm. research in various ways. But with, you know, you get your MD degree from any medical school in North America and um, they will not even offer these old-fashioned animal labs anymore. They've stopped it completely. And that, I know this isn't what you asked me about, but this, <laughs> that makes a better doctor. You do not want doctors who are told, just accept suffering, just, you know, accept death. You know, 
I want a doctor who fights against those things. You want a doctor who, who has compassion, who respects life, uh, not somebody who's willing to make a whole bunch of compromises. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And yeah. growing up, you were, were hunting and you killed animals and you drove the slaughter truck. There's a hardening that has to happen with that where we have to lose our empathy. I want an empathetic doctor. And empathy also sometimes has to be learned. There are some people who come to this on their own. I'm always envious of the 10-year-old kid who realized, I don't want to eat animals. You know, and and you, know, you, you meet these people. And I think that's an amazing thing. But that's not everybody. And especially, I think, for guys in particular, they feel like, you know, it's not too macho to, to not, you know, to want to not eat the steak or something like that. Empathy has to be supported and sometimes just taught. And what a wonderful world it would be if we would actually teach kids about not just mathematics and science and grammar, but their place in the world and how to treat other human beings, other people that may be different from they are, and other species. Um, I don't mean that, that it has to be religious or has to be complicated or anything, just some simple kind of <laughs> rules about you know, how to behave properly. <laughs> and the, the person who's going to benefit the, the most is yourself. You know, you're, you know, you're going to be your risk of having health problems. It's not going to be zero, but it's going to be cut way, way, way down. And, and then you're treating other people better as well. And I was really slow to this. When I was in college, um, I lived in a group house, and there was a woman living there, and she was vegetarian. And I remember you know, thinking, gee, I, I, don't think we, we, I don't think we treated her with kind of the admiration <laughs> that we should have had you know, back then <laughs> in the 1970s to, to do this. Um, that was a darn good thing to do. And you've met, you mentioned Dean Ornish, and I know he does a lot with um, meditation and mindfulness. Where are, you, where are you with that as far as bringing that into medicine? Well, I think it's terrific. And first of all, Dean is a hero of mine. You know, and by the way, you know, not only has he done fantastic research, but he started it when he was a medical student. You know, what a genius. He got this idea that with diet and lifestyle changes, we can really have powerful effects on human health. And... and, and he started his research, but he also made sure that he did it really carefully. Flawless methodology, and he published in the top journal. So, I mean, he's just been an amazing mover and shaker. But basically, I think he's right that I think a, a healthy diet is really important, but it's not everything. You know, you also got to get the, get away from the cigarettes. If you're under a massive amount of stress, you got to deal with that. You know, and if there are poisons working their way into your life, you've got to try to find a way to get them out. Um, so he's, he's done a really good job with that. Now, having said that, life stresses us. It's stress all the time. But I always feel like you're at the top of a, a mountain. It makes a big difference if somebody's pushing you off or if you put on the skis and you're going down yourself. You know, the, if you're controlling that stress, if you're managing it, you know, you're way better off. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen scientific studies on meditation showing that it changes the brain, that we actually can increase our ability to be compassionate, that we can see the perspectives of others. So maybe you and I need to talk about starting a mindfulness department here at PCRM. Um, you know, we're, 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 our big focus is nutrition. I have to say uh, that, that's really our big thing. But what you say is exactly right. When I was in college, 
I went and I um, got trained in transcendental meditation because it was mm. kind of the, the big thing. And I was in a class where they were doing EEGs, you know, ele electroencephalography, and um, they wanted somebody to, to study. And so they asked me if I would have an EEG. And then they would have us meditate or not meditate. And you, the changes are immediate. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can see the changes in the brain waves right away. And, you know, you kind of wonder what people's brain waves are like, you know, in traffic, <laughs> in modern life. Yeah, because um, those so, things are going to happen. But it's the, the thing that the mindfulness does is it changes our relationship to those things. So yeah. we're still going to have traffic. Yeah. But now let me say one other thing. Sometimes mindfulness means disengagement. And um, there was a physician that I was really eager to work with. And he said, no, I, I really, we, would, we don't want to get, get involved in advocacy and whatever. We want to live in a rural area and just kind of do our thing. And my th in my view, mindfulness sometimes means being aware when things need to be changed. Mm. And if your house is on fire, mindfulness means getting your kids the hell out of there. It means taking vigorous action. And so to me, I don't necessarily want to be at peace. I want to be effective and I want to work, do good work. Um, and for me, mindfulness means not stressing with stuff that I don't need to be bothered with and focusing on what matters. Yeah. And then, and you also do have to take care of yourself. You got to have balance. You know, you don't want to stay up till two in the morning and, you know, knock yourself out. You got to treat your body right. Um, you got to refuel, you know, with love and with yeah. relaxation and exercise and all mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But we live in a world where there's a lot of cruelty. And to me, we have to, as long as, as long as that's there, we have to work to stop it. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was the birthplace of PCRM? New York City. Uh, I'd finished my training here in Washington. I was at the George Washington University, finished my residency, moved to New York. I was uh, working at a big hospital called St. Vincent's Hospital in downtown New York. And while I was there, I got this idea that in medicine, we don't do anything about heart attacks until they come into the emergency room door. Mm. And I um, thought, yeah, maybe that ought to change. And maybe we should do something about prevention, and especially diet. And, and I started to also really want to change how research was conducted and deal with some of the animal issues that I mentioned earlier. So I, I, had the, I came up with this awful name, the Physician's Committee <laughs> for Responsible <laughs> Medicine. That's a terrible name. But um, <laughs> you thought it would be a committee of like 10 or 12 doctors. We now have 12 or 13,000 physicians who belong and maybe 160, 170,000 um, other people, you know, nurses and dietitians and concerned lay people. So it's not really a committee anymore, but, um, but that's the name. And um, we've been very busy doing research studies and trying to put the, our findings to work in policy. So we're on this, we were talking earlier about our tour and how we're, mm -hmm. we're traveling cross country and, and we're very passionate about, you know, the, the health and wellness movement and, and being yogis and triathletes and, you know, interest in nutrition. Um, we are making more impact by the conversations we have with individual people, whereas before we thought we'd have 
groups. We'd, we'd go together and, and call together 20 or 30 people and, and, and do a presentation. But we're, we're finding that the connections one-on-one with people um, are really benefiting their lives, and it's giving us feedback as to what we're doing is right. So what do you recommend we can do in the remaining 10 weeks? We're on the road. We're traveling to California. Where do you see our biggest impact um, affecting the nation? Well, you should win the lottery, and so then you can hire hundreds more people to do exactly what you're doing. You know, everyone finds their own way, um, and there are people who have a big mouthpiece because they're, you know, they're teachers, or you know, they they reach a lot of people, or they have a television show, or whatever. But everyone kind of finds where they're effective. And for you, you're not only reaching people individually, but you're also doing this series of podcasts, which is great. Um, and you will never know all the people that you affect. Um, and each one of them affects so many other people. So it's, it's wonderful what, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I have to say you can only plan so much. You never know. Um, opportunities <laughs> drop out of the sky and threats present themselves too. But you kind of negotiate your way around them. So what you're doing is really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, and, and not really having a hardline plan has brought us here mm-hmm. and to sit yeah. with you. So thank you so much for your time today. And I know that this interview is going to have a big effect on people. So we really, really appreciate it. We'll put a link up to PCRM in the show notes. So what's the best way for people to kind of follow you? Can you do some great videos and write some great articles? Um, yeah, we, uh, our website is PCRM.org. I also have, a, you know, all the t- typical social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, and so forth. I hope people will dig into those. Um, I've got a new book coming out. Um, which is all about cheese, of all things, because I've heard so many people say, I went vegan, I feel great, I've lost all this weight, but the one thing I really crave is cheese. And I wondered why that is, and I think I found out why it is. So I wrote a whole book about it, and that's, that's coming out. It's called The Cheese Trap. Um, so as these things come up, we'll, we'll be sure that they're all over our website. And I appreciate your uh, letting people know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be a really important book because there are, I, I think what you're hinting as, a, there are some addictive qualities to, to dairy and it seems to be the last thing that people give up. So we'll look forward to seeing that and we'll put links to your other books, all 17, 18 of them. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> there'll be a, Each one is a tool. There'll be a whole library of resources, but thank you so much, Dr. Barnard. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks a million. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Sir, thanks. Thanks for including me. And that's a wrap. Dr. Neil Barnard, medical professional extraordinaire. I mean, is there anything else to say? Like, is there anything else to say? I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe you've been left with questions. And if you have, please reach out to us. We're here to share our knowledge and all the tools that we use every single day to live a vibrant and strong plant-based life. Check out our High Vibe Kitchen services. There's a link in the show notes. We're offering one-on-one consulting and our newly added Plant-Based 101 group call over Skype. So get your like-minded peeps together and let's dive in. You know... Like Dr. Barnard said, we shouldn't have to have a PhD to feed ourselves healthy, to heal our bodies and live a quality life. And we agree with him when he said, isn't it time that we just stop questioning it? There's a mountain of evidence. There is mountains of evidence that a whole food plant-based diet is the foundation of a healthy life. And it's all our choice. Even on a tight budget, eating healthy can happen. But if you don't know where to start, 
the first step is asking for help. We are here to support you. We have dedicated our lives to assisting those who are ready to make positive changes in their lives. And we believe wholeheartedly with everything that we are, that living a more vibrant life is within reach for all. So thank you so much for tuning in. You guys, please share this podcast with your friends and family and make comments and leave a review on iTunes and let's keep the Yogi Triathlete podcast coming to you every single week. So we're going to check in with you guys next week with another awe-inspiring person who is just like you. But until then, keep choosing that higher vibration of life.